Hey, it's Brian, back with another episode for those of us getting an early start on the Christmas season. Or at least getting ready for Halloween. Because today I have another Christmas ghost story for you. Well, sort of. It does involve Christmas, and it does involve a ghost, but it's unlike anything you've ever heard on Christmas Past before. You see, back in 2017, after the first season of Christmas Past, I started a second podcast, though it didn't last very long. It was called Illusion. The idea was that I would tell true stories from history that involved illusions. The tagline was True Stories of Impossible Things and the People Behind Them. This is a topic that's always fascinated me. The idea that humans have seemingly always found ways to bend reality by exploiting the gaps in our ability to sense and perceive. Experiencing illusions, large and small, is part of our daily lives, and I believe it's one of the things that makes us human. Well, anyway, illusion isn't available anymore, but I thought you'd be interested in hearing this particular episode. It's about an innovation in stagecraft that revolutionized storytelling in its day. I hope you like it. I'll come back at the end to wrap up. But for now, here's the 2017 episode of Illusion, The Professor and the Tilted Glass. Christmas Eve was as good a night as any to haunt a house. And when the ghost materialized, appearing from nowhere before their eyes, all anyone in the room could do was watch. Anyone except the student reading at his desk by candlelight, in his waistcoat and mutton chops and whatever else a young man wore in Victorian London. Everyone else in the room had seen a ghost before, but never one like this. Never one that materialized out of thin air. Never one that eerily occupied the space where just moments before there had been nothing at all, that appeared as vaporous and transparent, that haunted as hauntingly, its arms flailing as menacingly as the one that appeared now, in that darkened room on Christmas Eve in 1862. The student lunged from his chair to grab a sword to swing at the ghost, which disappeared in time to avoid the blow. Not that it needed to, the sword could have passed right through it, and the apparition would have been no worse for wear. The student returned to his seat and to his work, and just moments later the ghost returned, just as mysteriously, just as menacingly, only to disappear again, lingering as it faded, like an echo, like the last blushing colors of sundown, as the room descended into a brief but total darkness. And then the house lights came up, and the applause was spontaneous and electric, filling the narrow lecture hall at London's Royal Polytechnic Institution. The audience had come to see a dramatization of Charles Dickens' fifth and final Christmas novella, The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. They didn't know they'd be among the first people anywhere to witness a major innovation in stagecraft, the ability to summon spirits on command, to make them appear and disappear. This was new, and amazing. We live in a world now where television and film can produce any imaginable creature in near photorealism. But for centuries it was the stage that was the innovation hub of technology for bringing imagination vividly to life, where audiences could see the gods and monsters of folklore speak and move, where visual effects came in the form of makeup and lighting and trap doors built into stages. False panels and cranes positioned overhead to lower a deus ex machina at the critical moment. 
More than 2,500 years ago, audiences in ancient Greece saw just that very thing happen in the Eumenides, a play that also included an appearance from a ghost, the ghost of Clytemnestra. Ghosts have captured our imaginations for millennia. The idea that some part of us goes on existing after death, that there's a world beyond our own that spirits can return from, these mysterious beings that can bring us messages from the other side, that let us imagine ourselves differently, that aren't subject to earthly forces like gravity and mass. They can appear and disappear, move through walls. These ideas have sent chills down spines hunched over campfires, inspired romance writers into the mischief of three-volume novels, emboldened charlatans to claim special ability to communicate across the veil between worlds offered a strand of hope that death isn't really the end. So naturally, ghosts would appear in the earliest dramas and feature prominently in Shakespeare and haunt many a Victorian stage. It was good theater. A ghost could add a bolt of excitement and move the plot in a new direction, could materialize to deliver messages unobtainable through earthly means, provide supernatural thrills, but theatrical ghosts are, of course, people. Actors draped in gauze and speaking with a hoarse tremor in the voice and swaying their torsos and limbs to give the appearance of floating and undulating in the ether. They could appear only as realistic as their acting abilities and the state of the art of stagecraft allowed. Over the years, there were innovations to make for ghosts with more believable appearance and movements. Some theaters had experimented with projecting images onto billows of smoke released onto the stage, which was a problem because the rest of the stage had to be darkened and it hid the other actors, not to mention that it filled the room with smoke. In 1852, London audiences saw a ghost appear to sink gracefully into the floor, to move across the stage without walking, in a stage adaptation of the Dumas novel The Corsican Brothers. The appearance and movement of the ghost was made possible by a ramp hidden underneath the stage, and a contraption built into the stage like a conveyor belt with a hole in it that was positioned directly over the ramp. An actor could step into the hole and onto the ramp underneath, and as he slid down the ramp moving across the stage, the conveyor belt moved with him, giving the rough appearance of slowly disappearing. And it was a smash hit. Queen Victoria saw the play five times. So imagine you're a Victorian theatergoer on Christmas Eve, with your waxed mustache or your fur hand muff, and a ghost, a misty, transparent, floating ghost, appears not from the floor, but from thin air. Almost nobody had seen that before, felt that catch in the breath, that spontaneous widening of the eyes, that hushed stillness. Some illusions are created to bring our imaginations to life. Bring our thoughts and feelings, our hopes and fears and wildest fantasies out from our internal selves and into the external world. To see the content of our own thoughts, interact with them, experience them as real. Let two people experience the same imaginary thing in exactly the same way. Stretch our imaginations to new dimensions. This is the story of an illusion like that. A ghost story, but not the kind you're used to. The story of a showman, and an invention that changed our imaginations, paved the way for cinematic special effects, and came to be known as Pepper's Ghost.
I'm Brian Earle, and this is Illusion. After the applause died down, a dapper, silver-haired gentleman took the stage. John Henry Pepper was the director of the Polytechnic Institution, a sort of permanent science fair, founded in 1838 with the patronage of Prince Albert to promote and popularize science. Popular for entertaining exhibits like steam engines and printing presses and weaving looms, Londoners would line up to pay a shilling for the novelty of sitting inside a diving bell and being submerged in a tank, or watch microbes swimming across a drop of water flashed 50 feet wide by an oxyhydrogen projecting microscope. And in this crucial historical moment for science, an explosion of discovery and invention and popular interest, Pepper was just the man to lend a name and a face to it all. Part lab-coated professor, part carnival barker, he had been giving popular lectures on chemistry since he was 19 years old. And when he took over the institution in 1854, he emphasized exhibitions that blurred the line between laboratory science and theatrical spectacle. So when he took to the stage after the show on Christmas Eve, he had to decide between playing the part of the professor explaining the science of optics and lighting that made the ghost effect possible, or that of a magician who never reveals a secret. And he chose the latter. To understand how the ghost illusion works, look out the window into a dark night. Your ghostly reflection looks back at you, superimposed on the scene outside. Glass can be both transparent and reflective. And the theatrical applications of this phenomenon was an unlikely discovery for a part-time inventor from Liverpool named Henry Dirks, who had come up with variations and improvements on the steam engine and the sewing machine and the fire escape. Unlikely because he had little interest in drama or stagecraft. And when he happened upon his discovery, his Dirksian phantasmagoria, as he called it, and after he presented his findings to the British Association for the Advancement of Science in 1858, he was convinced that it would be a revolution in stagecraft, would forever change dramatic traditions, allow a new generation of playwrights and directors to think in extra dimensions of imagination and possibility. The age of optical illusions in special effects was here. There was just one small problem. In order to summon Dirks's phantasmagoria, you'd have to build a theater around it. The design required that the audience sit in a balcony at a 45-degree angle above the stage. And underneath the balcony, hidden from the audience, would be a duplicate stage facing the main one, with a large pane of glass separating the two. And when the hidden stage was brightly lit, whatever was on it would appear as a ghostly image on the main stage. Not only that, but the illusion required a lot of bright lighting to work, and the design called for large windows in the theater, ruling out anything but daytime performances. He shopped his idea around to London theaters, which showed little interest. But in 1862, he took his idea to Professor Pepper, who saw the potential, but also the impracticality, until he came up with something that Dirks and the other theater managers had overlooked a simple tweak that made it viable for regular theatrical use. Rather than place the audience at a 45-degree angle above the stage, 
place them level or slightly below, and tilt the glass 45 degrees downward, pointing toward a second stage concealed in the orchestra pit. That first performance on Christmas Eve took place in one of the institution's smaller lecture rooms, but the massive success of it convinced Pepper to bring the show to its main stage. And the crowds came. Nearly three-quarters of a million visitors stood in line to buy their tickets and sit in a theater seat and see a ghost materialize before their eyes. And because seeing is believing, because we're not naturally inclined to doubt our own senses, and because this was still Victorian London, many of the people who came to see, many of those nearly three-quarters of a million people, were convinced that what they saw was real. Pepper described receiving piles of letters from spiritualists, who believed that spirits of the dead were both able and inclined to communicate with the living. They genuinely believed that Pepper had made a scientific discovery that made it possible to summon real spirits on command. In this age of exploding scientific discovery, why not? Sixty years later, even Thomas Edison would theorize that such a thing was possible. Skeptics saw an opportunity to argue that spirit mediums were frauds, that the principles of optics made for a rational wonder born out of curiosity and knowledge, not superstition and fraud, that demonstrating that it was possible to produce the image of a ghost by earthly means, by sound scientific principles, that cast suspicion on anyone who claimed the ability to do it with hocus-pocus. Pepper knew that an idea this good was worth patenting. So he and Dirks filed jointly for a patent, which protected not the basic idea behind the ghost, but the specific improvement thought up by Pepper, the slanted pane of glass and the stage set up in the orchestra pit. Dirks wasn't happy about any of this. He didn't think that Pepper had really added anything to the original invention. And though Pepper really did try to give equal credit to Dirks, his outsized personality stole the show, and the press labeled the effect as Professor Pepper's ghost, or just Pepper's ghost, and there was no going back. Dirks took 500 pounds, waiving future royalties, and signed over to Pepper all financial rights in their patent, and the two soon had a falling out. And the very notion of patenting an invention like the ghost brought its own set of problems public arguments with music halls that thought that such an idea ought to be public property, the difficulty of defending the patent against copycats that sprang up in theaters in London and fairgrounds in America, where curiosity seekers could enter a darkened tent and see a girl transform into a gorilla. But still, Pepper had a good run of success licensing the effect to theaters and music halls, in Manchester, in Bath, in Glasgow, in New York, in Boston. The summer after that first performance on Christmas Eve, the Britannia Theatre, a melodrama house in a working-class section of North London, debuted a piece written specifically for the illusion. It was called The Widow and the Orphans, Faith, Hope, and Charity, and it told the story of the ghost of a clergyman's widow who returns to haunt the man who murdered her over the lease of a house. The show was a huge success, and a theater critic's review described the moment when the ghost appeared, writing, There were no more discharges of ginger beer artillery from above and beyond. The sucking of oranges and cracking of nuts has entirely ceased, and even the numerous babies have left off crying. 
the London Pavilion offered a show where a series of attractive female ghosts appeared to a gentleman dreamer. Audiences loved a good ghost story, and playwrights churned them out by the dozen to satisfy their appetites. Pepper's ghost was the talk of the town. But none of this was perfect. The large pane of glass acted as a sound barrier between the actors and the audience. And because the actor playing the ghost was situated in the orchestra pit, no one could hear him speak either. All of which meant that the stories had to be told in pantomime to musical accompaniment, or with a narrator positioned in front of the glass telling the story as it unfolded behind him. And the glass was expensive and cumbersome, and it had to be faultless so that it would appear invisible to the audience. All of which meant that by the end of the 1860s, the ghost had become too much of a hassle to most theaters to make it viable for ongoing use, and it disappeared almost completely from the stage. And Pepper moved on to other pursuits, touring and lecturing throughout America and Canada with his wife and son, before moving to Australia in 1879, where he proposed a scientific solution to the drought that plagued the southeast of Queensland a few years later announced a public rain-making event in a farm field to put his experiment into play, which was as dangerous as it was loony, involving a huge kite and a bonfire and swivel guns, all of which were somehow supposed to change the electrical activity in the clouds and bring rain. But instead the kite failed to catch wind, and one of the guns overloaded with gunpowder exploded and landed in the grandstands where more than 700 people had come to witness the event. It was a public humiliation for Pepper, who returned to England a few years later to live out his remaining years in retirement. And when he died in 1900, obituaries remembered him not only for popularizing an illusion, but also for managing to do what no one else had ever been able to do before. Literally, outlive his own ghost. But ghosts return from the dead. It's what they do, after all. And Pepper's ghost came back to haunt scenes in the new art of cinema and mansions at Disney World, bring museum displays to life, and Tupac back to the stage at Coachella. Because illusions continue to inspire wonder and imagination long after the secret is known. The ghostly image produced from an object reflected on tilted glass makes us stop and lets us, however briefly, experience the impossible, shimmering in the darkness, lit from below, before fading away as mysteriously as it came. Well, thanks very much for listening. I sure hope you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed my time making Illusion, and maybe one of these days I'll bring it back. Something I'll definitely be bringing back is me in just a few days with an all-new episode of Christmas Past. We'll keep up this pace of about one new episode a week as we count down to Thanksgiving, and after that we have entered the official 2021 season of Christmas Past, where every few days I'll be bringing you the backstory to one of your favorite Christmas traditions. Make sure you stay subscribed all season long so you don't miss anything. And before I let you go, let me remind you that it is never too early to send a Christmas memory to appear in an episode later on this season. In fact, the earlier the better. Record yourself speaking into your phone's voice memo app and then send it over to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. 
Let's stay connected all the way up to the big day and beyond. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let me invite you to join our private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet. And if you're really feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover the show? It's as easy as telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details on that. I'll see you again before you know it, and until then, may your days be merry and bright.